Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Kathleen Moran i samtal med Jan Gradvall. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Jag var på din Twitter this morning. And very early this morning, you wrote, you used the hashtag vodka. Yes. And you wrote, um, I'm sort of redrawing my face from memory with eyeliner. Yes. I think I might have drawn the wrong face on. I think I don't <laughs> remember what my face looked like. I, um, I was uh, in Helsinki last night, and uh, the, uh, the Finns took it upon themselves to ruin me before I came to Sweden. They were like, it's... You don't understand there's a rivalry between Finland and Sweden. We're going to make sure that when you go to Sweden, you're very fucked up. And, uh, and they did that through the medium of vodka. Um, we ended up in a bar where, um, that was apparently uh, modeled on a, a, a bar in communist Russia, which didn't seem like a great night out to me, but there you go. And uh, we drank an enormous amount of vodka, and then we drank some more shots, and then we drank some more vodka. And then a man who was on acid tried to put my hand in his mouth. Um, <laughs> And, and then we had some more vodka, and then we ran away. Um, and as a consequence, I woke up this morning with a uh, hangover so thermonuclear um, that I had to do what I do in times of extreme emergencies, which is pretend that I'm in the TV series Game of Thrones and, and that I am Khaleesi, mother of dragons. <laughs> It's just a little confidence tip. It works quite well. <laughs> and you, you even wrote... Yes. The next couple of tweets, you wrote them in character, being yes. this character from Game yes. of Thrones. But I thought that's a quite interesting thing to start with. What do you think, I suppose, you know, Game of Thrones, sort of a fantasy series with a lot of dwarves and yes. wolves in it. Yes. What do you think about that series from a feminist perspective? Well, I, I mean, it was one of the... Um, I was going to say one of the few times I've really fucked something up. It's one of a million times I've fucked something up. Um, when uh, well, One of my jobs is being a TV critic. And uh, when Game of Thrones um, first came to uh, the UK, I watched the first episode, and I wrote a very angry 2,000-word piece going, oh, God, fantasy. It's always so white. It's always so male. It's always so heteronormative. Um, it's always um, some, some tip a chick with massive tits being banged on a rock by some dude. Um, it's just so sexist. I hate fantasy. It's for 14-year-old boys who dream of being IT workers. Fuck you all, fuck you all. And, um, and then I went away on a holiday with all my brothers and sisters, and what we usually do is watch the entire director's cut of Lord of the Rings from start to finish, including all the extra dwarf songs that they axed from the... Uh, from the original cinema cut, because we're quite hardcore about that. But we, we'd all finally tired of watching it. And they were like, let's watch Game of Thrones instead. And I was like, not more dwarves. And uh, they were like, no, 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 it's good. And we watched the whole thing in one, in one epic sitting. And it, I realized it, was, it actually has a massively feminist mm. um, agenda to it. You know, by the end of it, you know, Khaleesi, uh, uh, Queen of Dragons, um, uh, looks like she's going to take over the world. Um, and is so powerful that she can get me through a hangover. So, um, so, so I... I learned to love Game of Thrones very much. I see it as a feminist yeah. text. Another thing that is widely discussed in popular culture this autumn is the book Fifty Shades of Grey. Christ, it yes. will be out in Sweden next month. Femti Nyanser av Honom, I think it's called in Swedish. Yes. You, you wrote a very good review of that book in the Times. Thank you, I got that one right, I think. Yeah, no. yes. <laughs> And I think you, you, you sort of defended... A lot of people have said it's bad writing, but yes. you said... 
that's not the point of the book. No, no. Well, the, the point is that kind of you know, in a, in a, uh, I mean, the, I have massive rants about pornography and stuff. You know, I'm in favour of pornography. I just think it's very badly made. Uh, you know, I just think as, as as a feminist, there's nothing unfeministic about you know, pornography is just some people having sex. Uh, how can it damage me as a feminist, a woman, as a human being to watch some people having sex? Um, well, only if it's really badly made and hateful. Uh, you know, in, in pornography, you very rarely see women having any kind of fun whatsoever. Uh, and uh, so, you know, as a feminist, I think we shouldn't ban pornography, which would be impossible. We just think you need to start making it, making good pornography, where you see women having a good time. Um, so, so from that point of view, given that I'm, I'm pro, you know, female authored pornography, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is a massive breakthrough because suddenly there's a massive market um, for, for female written pornography. The, the, however badly written this book is, it's created millions and millions of pounds and a massive interest within the market that will now be used to commission beautifully written female pornography. And it will be, you know, a whole new market's been, um, been invented. And any kind of place when a new market opens up that's interested in women is, as a feminist, always good news for me. So politically, I'm in favour of Fifty Shades of Grey. However, I wouldn't wank to it. Um, I was, they were talking yesterday about how they're translating it now for Sweden. I was like, well, that won't take long. Um, the, the, the entire thing is, hi, I'm very rich and I'd like to spank you. Okay. Ow, ow, that hurts. Ow, I don't like it. Have an iPad. Ow, ow, I don't like this. Have a car. Ow, ow, the end. I mean, it's just... <laughs> And also, I was trying to work out why it's so popular at the moment. It's like, how can this have sold more than Harry Potter already? This is astonishing. How is this happening? And, uh, and I had a, a quiet moment of uh, chin-strokey reflection. And I was thinking, well, this is, this is the story about um, someone who is sort of young and innocent being really badly hurt uh, and manipulated uh, by someone very rich in exchange for material goods. Hmm, that's like an allegory for modern society. Mm. We are the young spanked girl being hurt by capitalism in exchange for iPhones. That's what it is. Um, uh, and then I stopped thinking that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do write about pornography in your own book as well. And you mentioned your brothers and sisters earlier now. You have seven, right? Yes. Yes. I'm interested to see how you're going to link from pornography to me having seven brothers and sisters. I, I, I've, I've actually, I want I've actually you to know I'm with idea. you all the I've way, and idea. I hope it works no, out okay. No. <laughs> it won't be exactly that. I was going to say... <laughs> exactly. Uh, your book, I think one interesting thing with it, it, you said you wrote it for one of your younger sisters. Yes, I did, yes. Uh, a younger sister who doesn't really read books. No, no, no. all she, um, my sister Cole, who I love, I love all my family, we all, we all go away on holidays together, we spend all our time together. Um, our, uh, she is the fifth one down, and uh, she's never read a book. Uh, she's never watched a film all the way through, because they just get a bit long, they're really long. Um, <laughs> Also, she chain smokes so much that she has to have a cigarette every seven minutes. And as a family, we cannot tolerate having to pause a video every seven minutes while she goes out for a fact. It's like just shouting through the window going, Cole, it's all right. I'm just going to describe it to you. We're not going to pause it. We're just going to keep going, old friend. We're just going to keep going on this one. Um, so, yes, yeah, she never watches films. She never reads books. Uh, she doesn't read newspapers. The only thing she reads is um, celebrity gossip magazines. And uh, she's a single mum on benefits. Um, and she's very, very clever. Um, um, but she had never heard of feminism. And, and I thought... 
you are exactly the kind of person who needs to learn about feminism. If I write a book about, if I could uh, write a book that was dryly academic and full of facts, which I couldn't, um, then she would not read that. And so it would kind of be a bit pointless. Uh, I wanted to write a book about feminism that just explained to a girl like Cole that she was a feminist. And she didn't even buy the book because it was about feminism. She bought it because she heard there was some like dirty stories in it. And it was quite funny. And then halfway through, went, oh my God, I'm a feminist. Amazing. Um, <laughs> Which is what, in the end, she did. Uh, she ran me up and she said, I'm a feminist. I was like, great, that's great. Um, and, uh, and then she said, and I'll tell you what as well, I never knew Jermaine Greer was a real person. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? She was like, well, when, I, when we were younger and, uh, and anything bad would happen, you'd always go, yeah, all right, thanks, Jermaine Greer, uh, in a sarcastic way. And uh, I just thought she was like some monster that you'd made up. Um, <laughs> I didn't really realize she was real. So, so it was a big breakthrough for Cole that day. She, um, yeah. she learned a lot about feminism. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that makes it a great and a very important book, that you really try to reach an audience who's not familiar with this, really. Very few writers do that nowadays, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just saw a massive amount of cash yeah. <laughs> to be made in that, and so that's where I went. Hmm. Um, no, I mean, it really, really was. Yeah. I mean, I totally am up for a revolution. Mm. I just kind of, you get to a certain age and mm. you kind of, once you've given up the idea of uh, becoming a supermodel uh, or, or uh, running a marathon, you think, well, what, what options are actually available to me? And I was just like, I reckon a revolution's doable. Yeah, I reckon I could yeah. probably... I could probably fit that in. So mm. I did write it with a massive kind of um, desire to hugely change the world. Mm. And I just thought I might as well give that a go. Yeah. What's the worst yeah. that can happen? Mm. <laughs> 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 I have to make it clear, I haven't done that, and the book in no way actually does that, but it's just good to have a dream. You know, kind of, you know, if, if television has taught me anything, it's uh, other than that we're all on a journey, um, it's that you must also have a dream, um, and that was my dream. Yeah. I was thinking of the way you write. I mean, it is... Like this. Yeah. <laughs> Literally like that. I'm actually interested in exactly how you do it. But it, it, it is hard to write about serious stuff. Yes. But it's much harder to write about serious stuff in a way that is funny, accessible, and inviting. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. What writers have you read uh, that helped you becoming such a good writer? Uh, well, people who I... Uh, I mean, that question is, who have you ripped off? Um, <laughs> the, the people I was inspired by um, yeah. were... Um, well, the, the first person that I thought I, I so want to be in on that action um, is Stephen Fry. I don't know if his stuff is... Yeah, kind of I, rare, I think but, he's very well known in Sweden, yeah. But I loved, I just love the fact that his whole shtick was basically kind of, I'm just trying to be sort of clever and good and reasonable. He, he had a, a, a regular column um, in, in the UK during the early 90s, and they were all collected together in a, a collection called Paperweight. Uh, which is, uh, I'd never read the columns when they were run at the Times, but I got the book a couple of years later, and I just read through, and each one was a thousand words. And every time he'd just sort of gone into a problem, um, he'd gone at it sort of sideways, he'd come at it at a beautiful angle. Most writers kind of either come at something head-on, going, this is amazing, or they come at it from behind, going, this is terrible. And it's, and it's that, it's just straight on or straight from behind. And he would always come at things at a lovely kind of 47-degree angle, kind of yeah. coming in from the side, so you're not attacking something, you're kind of allowing people to sort of... You don't start with an opinion. You start mm. at approaching something, yeah. describing what the situation is, which is a nice way, instead of as a reader, 
going kind of, oh, I'm really wound up about this. Um, he's just kind of like, I'm going to follow you on a journey. We can make our minds up together. And, um, and then he would just be very clever and reasonable about something and just genuinely trying to solve a problem or, or, or suggest, um, or, or, you know, make, make suggestions about how the world could be a better place. And I was like, that's what a brilliant and lovely thing to do. Mm. That's totally what I would like to do for my job to be. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he was the main one. Oh, who else doing? Oh, the writers do I love. And you said angles. That's interesting because all writing is angles in a way. Yes. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like yeah. when you're when you're when you're writing something. It's like kind of playing snooker. Um, you know, you're you're trying to get the ball in the hole, um, and you you just have to keep walking around the table until you can work out how you can do it. You usually know where you're trying to get to, but you just have to keep walking around with your stick. And can I do it from there? Can I do it from there? Can I do it yeah, from there? Yeah. And the best writers come at something from a very odd angle because that's the, the, the that that because that's the first paragraph. Um, the first paragraph is you're kind of like, where the hell's this come from? Yeah. Rather than just going, here's something terrible. Yeah. Or, yeah. Here's mm. a thing I fancy. Um, actually, that is most of my columns do start with that. Actually, <laughs> here's something I fancy. It's Sherlock. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. It's kind of yes. Uh, that's all I ever do. Mm. Uh, have you ever teach writing at, at the writing <laughs> school? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was just imagining me as a teacher, just kind of sitting on a desk. Right, kids, where's the smoking area? Um, is your headmaster hot? Let's play a sexy game. Um, uh, uh, no, God, no, I've never taught anyone, no. Um, a, a, because... Um, no, because I didn't go to school and I didn't go to university, so I've never really seen the point of like telling people things. Because mm. as a writer, I learned to write by reading. So you just look at the thing you want to do and kind of. And so when I write now, I tend not to write as a writer. I write as a reader. I'm kind of going, well, what would I like to read now? Because mm. as a writer, you're kind of it. Basically, it becomes a bit like wanking. You're going, what fabulous sentence could I craft that would give me a massive horn mm. on? I know. I'll, I'll describe. I'll describe something at length. That will satisfy me, and I'll be all poetic and amazing. And Generally, by and large, no one wants to read your massively long description of a tree. Um, so, although I did actually once write a whole column about trees, um, and I did describe them in quite a lot of detail. But you see, every piece of advice I give, I will instantly go, actually, I did do that. Um, but uh, so when I'm writing something, I'm just like, no, what would I like to read now? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest influences on my writing was the book, The Never Ending Story, that they made the film out of. With the, the Lee Marl the theme song. Yes. 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 Neverending yeah. oh, okay, okay. Story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but the great thing about uh, Neverending Story, which is a children's book, um, is that they, um, the film is only made of the first half. So I'd seen the film first and was like, oh, that was reasonable. And uh, and then I got the book out, and uh, the film ends exactly halfway through. And oh no, no. Well, it's the bit. It's the bit in the book where kind of like he's reading the book. He's reading the book, and then he goes into the book. And there's a child, that's your dream, that kind of like, I mean, you're, you know, it's the first time I was like, oh my God, literally my dream is, the, as a reader, I couldn't read anything more exciting than this. And, um, and, and something unexpected happening, the, the, the biggest dream that you have as a reader, um, I try and do that as a writer. I try and make it happen that you have a magic bit where you kind of go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Or you kind of take off somewhere or you go, actually, I do have a solution. Um, but I never succeed. But that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> okay. So, so, so you reread that book, The Neverending Story, and that's, that helped you actually. Yes. To, well, to just get, technically, because yeah, yeah, he's doing yeah. it, he just kind of like you can do. It's almost like an impossible thing that he does. He makes it so real. His imagination is so huge. He just goes mm. there. Yeah. And uh, and it just kind of you know I always wanted to be that. I just go there. Kind of. Yeah. That's, that's always the ambition anyway. Mm. Mm.
None of that made any sense at all. I'm so no, sorry. No, it definitely, it definitely made sense. It was sense. literally because yeah. once you started singing yeah. Lamal, yeah. I yeah. just had that in my head. And it's yeah. really difficult mm. to talk very cleverly about writing when you've got mm. Lamal singing in your head. going, <laughs> And it's just, <laughs> I'm never going to try and do that again. I've, I've found tonight no. I can't do that. No. Sorry. I was thinking about education. I think a lot of people in Sweden now, or everywhere are very worried about schools. Which school should you pick? Is this the right school? Is it a good school? But you actually were homeschooled yes. at 11 years old. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why? How? How did that come? Um, well, at the time, what we had to tell the local education authorities um, was that um, we found um, our, um, our education in school too constricting, too formalised. Uh, we wanted to stretch the boundaries of education. Uh, we wanted to kind of reinvent the concept of education. This is what we told them. Um, in reality, uh, it was because uh, my mum couldn't be fucking bothered to wash that many socks and pants. Uh, to be ready at 8.30 every morning. I mean, that's a lot of children that she was having to get ready before breakfast. Um, so it really was that. I mean, I, I say that flipply, but they just couldn't be bothered to get us all out of the house um, at that time of the morning. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they did a clever thing, which is that um, if we had any problems with uh, being taught at home, like realising that we weren't getting an education and having no friends, uh, they made it... They made it all our fault, because they asked us if we'd like to leave school, and we went, yeah! as any child would, and, um, and then forever afterwards, if we went, this is terrible, I have no friends, and I suspect I may be socially anxious for the rest of my life, um, as I've never been acclimatized to the presence of other human beings, they go, well, you wanted to come out. <laughs> it's your fault, you said you wanted to. Um, and yes, and we never had a single lesson. Uh, we, we, we came out, we all came out in 1986, so I came out when I was 11, and you know, the others had less and less education in the last three, had never been to school at all. And um, we just spent all day watching videos. We just spent all day watching Ghostbusters over and over again, um, eating vast quantities of cheese, um, coming up with new ways to alarm our parents. We were very creative. Um, we, would, uh, we had some dolls that were the same size as the youngest baby, and uh, we would dress them in the clothes of the youngest baby, and then we'd go upstairs and throw the dolls out the window. <laughs> and our parents would be sitting downstairs watching television. Jesus, the baby's just... Oh, no, it's a doll. And then we'd leave that two or three months until they'd forgotten about it, and then we'd get the baby and throw the baby out the window. Parents, oh my God, I'm not going to remember that then. Sorry. Oh no, we just got millions of these. We had a game called Screaming, where um, you'd just go and stand in the back garden and scream literally for hours until neighbours would come around and tell us to stop. Um, there was the game Throw Mud at the House, um, where we threw mud at the house. Uh, the game Windows, where you just climbed out of a window. I mean, uh, we, were, we were poor, but we knew how to amuse ourselves. <laughs> but are you actually allowed to do that? I thought the school would send someone home and starting asking questions, why don't you get your kids to school? Were there any hassle with the authorities? Well, they came around about twice, and then yeah. uh, by that point, uh, I'd worked out that with my precisely no qualifications, uh, that uh, very soon my entire future employment prospects would be limited to either A, working in the local supermarket pushing trolleys, um, or B, being a prostitute. <laughs> and I told my sister about my prostitute plan, and uh, she said, no, we share a bunk bed, and... 
I would find that unpleasant. Um, so, so it was Ixnay and the prostitute thing. And um, so then I started writing a book. Um, I, was, I was very worried um, about our financial situation, so I started writing a novel. So by that point, from the local education authority's point of view, when they came around, mm. there was a 13-year-old going, I'm writing a novel that's going to be published. And they're like, mm, mm. she's fine, that's okay. Um, they seem to be all right. But, but you did finish a novel and oh, it yeah. was published. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, no, no, it was published when I was 15. Yeah, and um, yeah. and it was, that was the first time that the, the cold reality of being a writer hit home because I spent two years writing the book thinking I'm going to save our family from poverty. This is be able to support my family for the rest of my life now with this, with this book. And uh, it took two years to write and we got it published. And then I got a check for £1,200. And at that point, I realized that this was not enough money for even our family to live on for the rest of our lives. Um, and that was at the point where I realized that generally as a writer, you don't get paid that much. Um, so that was when I realized I would have to become a journalist instead uh, because there was more money in journalism. And uh, it, it was literally that simple. They, they, I went, I just said to my publisher, there's not much money in being an author. And she said, no, that's journalism. And I went, right, I'll be a journalist then. <laughs> I just sat down, started writing pieces. And then I wrote a piece and I faxed it to the Times and uh, they gave me a column that week. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be a prompt for applause. That was more like, what the fuck were they thinking? Like, kind of, why would you do that? I was 18. I knew nothing. I was still wearing a dressing gown instead of a coat. I was still at this point believing that I was psychic and that the reason that I would never have to put my dog on a lead is because we communicated with each other with our minds. <laughs> Because at that point, I was reading so much 19th century literature where young peasant girls made friends with a fox or a crow and would walk around with it on their shoulder and they would communicate with their minds that I thought that my dog was like that too. So, Isn't why that one of the reasons why you changed your name? Because you, you're... Because I was insane at the yeah. time. Absolutely, no, 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 boilingly but <laughs> insane. Yeah. Yes. But, but, but you really, you're named Catherine? Yes. And then you change it to what everyone presumes is Caitlin, but it's really Kathleen. Really Kathleen, Is it true yes. that it's because it's sort of nine letters in that? Yes, I was into witchcraft at the time. Uh, again, you've got to have yeah. a hobby. Um, <laughs> I, sh I, should, I should point out that by the time I discovered masturbation, I, I forgot about witchcraft. That was my new <laughs> hobby, much healthier. I stopped trying to cast black magic spells on people I disliked. But um, until I discovered wanking, um, I believed that I could channel the powers of the devil. And uh, no, I just read in this book about numerology, where basically um, each letter in your name is given a, uh, a number, and then you add it up, and it tells you your future. Of course it does. Um, and the name Catherine Moran, uh, my real name, my given name, uh, was not so lucky. Um, but uh, I tried lots of different variants, and when I tried Catelyn Moran, it seemed that I had a fantastic future, and so I changed my name to that. And it sort of worked out quite good. Well, yeah, so th yeah, but yeah, then, yeah, don't yeah. say that, because I'm still <laughs> trying not to be a witch. I'm, yeah, still, yeah. I'm still trying to not believe mm -hmm. in magic. Don't mm -hmm. make me go back to believing in magic yeah, again. Yes. I suspect it was a coincidence. <laughs> You're making it sound very easy now when you became a writer, but before that, besides watching Ghostbusters, you spent a lot of time in, in the libraries. Yes. Yeah. You wrote a really also now the Times column about mm -hmm. sort of defending libraries. Right now in, in uh, Great Britain and yes. in Sweden, they're closing down libraries. Yes. Why is a library important? For, for a million reasons. I mean, I went, all my education, everything that I am or everything that I started off being is from having gone to our local library and just reading everything in it. 
Uh, there's something amazing about kind of just going through a library in that way. The people go, oh, well, you don't need libraries now. You've just got the internet. You just Google stuff. The in Google is only what you ask it to be. You type in something and you find it. A library is just there and you are formed by it. You know, if you go in and read everything in there, you'll come across things you never even knew you were going to be interested in. It gives you far more options. It's a, there's a the brilliant random factor to a library. And secondly, it's just the idea of spaces and places. As human beings, what kind of places do we want? And you know, particularly in rainy countries, northern countries, northern European countries, cold countries, you can't really be outdoors that much. So the only places you can be are inside your home or in a shop um, or that this third place, library and you know, museums and art galleries, third spaces. And in, in, you know, in shopping malls, you're just, however much money you've got in your pocket, you're a consumer, you're being made to feel bad. You go there with a need and a want that can only be solved by spending money, giving people money. Um, whereas when you go to a library, you're just a human being and your richness is in how inquisitive you are. It's not even how clever you are, it's just how curious you are and how many questions you want to ask of that building while you're in that space. And that's such a beautiful idea. I think it's one of the most beautiful ideas that we've come up with. Um, just somewhere where being a curious human being makes you the most you know, important person in that mm. building or the winner in that building. And that's such an interesting context to put particularly children into as well. Um, and to have that taken away um, so that the only places you can be now are in your home or in a shop. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, clearly we're going backwards in that. It was such a beautiful idea. The Victorians came up with these ideas of, of magnificent public libraries in mm. our country and built them uh, to make the populace cleverer. And the, the absurdity to think that, you know, that we can close them now. Like, that job's done, everyone's clever now. No, they'll become stupid yeah. if you close the libraries. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and those will all be made, and the, the, ration, the rationing, the, the, they never said the, they're being closed permanently in Britain. The idea is that we're going to go austerity measures at the moment, and for the next four years they're cutting public spending. Um, so they always left that sentence unfinished, the, the inference being that once the period of austerity is over and we've paid back our debt, they'll open the libraries again. Um, but of course that's not going to happen. And, you know, a building that for four years will start to crumble um, and will probably have been sold off by a, a local council to make flats. So you're never going to be able to make these places in the centre of communities, in beautiful buildings. You, you can't replace that kind of thing. You, you're pulling the centre out of a community and out of a, of, out of a town and out of a village. I think it's absolute vandalism. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. Uh, Um, that said, the reason they might have lost a lot of money is because we did steal quite a few library books at that point. <laughs> I've still got quite a few overlight due library books <laughs> in my house from Wolverhampton Public Library, so it might be my fault that they were quite yeah. cash-strapped, so sorry. Mm. <laughs> and there's also the class aspect of it. I mean, libraries are for people who aren't born with the parents who got a lot of books or money to buy books. Yes. And, and, and you, you are working class from Wolverhampton. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. even worse than working class, mm. even worse than working class. Uh, yeah. We were we were doll scum. We were the underclass. We were on benefits. Mm. Um, and it's interesting on British television the way that kind of, you know, people on benefits are portrayed. Uh, we've got one famous shame, uh, show there called Shameless, uh, which shows kind of like all working class people and people on benefits is like kind of, they're just like really tough and hard and clever and like they're riding around on tiny bikes selling drugs and mm. they're always really fast and like kind of they're not scared of anything and they stab people. And... Um, and, uh, and that kind of ignores the fact that, you know, on many of these scary council estates, there's just lots of kind of small, fat, pale teenage girls looking out of windows who are scared and, uh, and who don't want to ride around on tiny bicycles selling drugs and uh, whose biggest ambition is to one day meet maybe Oprah Winfrey. Um, and, uh, and just this portrayal of the working classes is one of the things that, that 
that makes me very, very angry. In the same way that the portrayal of women, and particularly teenage girls, uh, makes me very sad as well, because there's such a lack of choice. And that's why we, me and my sister have just finished writing a sitcom, uh, which is about three fat teenage girls in Wolverhampton, because I don't know where we got the idea. <laughs> um, because I just realised that every teenage girl I'd seen would be some kind of sexy chick in a little skirt, kind of like texting her friends, like, oh, when are we going to the party? Who am I going to get off with? Oh, got my hair. And, um, and that was, that, I never ever did that for even one second of my, of my adolescence. I wanted to write about teenage girls who read books and, uh, and keep dreaming about being a nun. <laughs> I just... I suspect I would have made a very bad nun. Uh, two of the biggest qualifications, not having sex and believing in God. But I liked the outfit. I think I looked good in monochrome. <laughs> and I liked the sound of music. <laughs> and while in the library, that's where you discovered Germaine Greer for the yes. first time? Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, did that, uh, her book made an impact on you directly? What did you think when you read the book the first time? Well, just loads of stuff slotted mm. into place. Um, I felt a massive burning injustice in my life in that uh, the first three children were girls and then there was my brother, Eddie, and uh, uh, my parents' sexism was quite apparent in the fact that they always referred to him as the little prince and, uh, and never made him do any housework and gave him his own room. Um, and I knew that was wrong. I was like, that can't be right. But I didn't know what the word was that explained why that was wrong and the word that could help me solve that until I got the female eunuch out of the library, mainly because it had a picture of a naked body on the cover and I thought it might be quite porny. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, There's going to be some good stuff in here. Look at this. And instead of finding pornography, I found feminism. And, um, and, uh, and there, feminism explained to me why it was wrong, the suppositions kind of... You don't even think people think women are inferior to boys. You're just like, this is just how it is. I, I feel this weird, bad feeling inside about so many things in my life because just that's the way that it is. And then someone points out to you, no, a massive amount of bullshit is happening to you and you're being made to feel bad about these things and there are expectations on you that there aren't of boys and vice versa. Um, and that's called the patriarchy and this is called feminism. Now go and sort some stuff out. And um, she just gave me lots of great tools for working things out. She was very kind of, let's look, even though she is a, a you know, very well-read um, and enormously qualified academic. She seemed to, and you know, she references lots of classical references in it and stuff. She seemed to be writing about this, first of all, from a point of view of common sense. So much of it was stuff that she worked out herself. You know, she was a pioneering feminist. It was all new theory that she'd worked out herself. And secondly, she wrote about it in a really rock and roll way. It wasn't mm. kind of, I've decided that feminism is good for you. It's like fiber and vegetables, and I'm now going to explain to you why you as a clever lady need to be a feminist. She was like, come on, come on ladies, take over the world. It was yeah. all just so exciting. She was thrilling, just sexy, thrilling, smart, funny, dirty, courageous woman. And I was just like, oh, I want a piece of that, man. I, 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 yes. <laughs> Right now you're going around the world with a book, and I guess you must get this question all the time about feminism, of course. But what advice w would you get, say, to young women now? Other than buy my book, 1199. Um, <laughs> I mean, God, there's, I mean, there's literally so much. Yeah. But the, I think the key ones are stop seeing yourself as a problem, as a list of problems. I think it's so common for women. I caught myself having the thought about three years ago, I caught myself thinking, I'll write a book, this is when I was 34, I'll write a book when my life begins. And I, I, I caught myself thinking, so I mean, what do I mean when my life begins? And then I realized that what I meant is that when I was finally properly thin uh, and very smooth 
and my hair was naturally brilliant, and I had a walk-in wardrobe like the one that Carrie Bradshaw has in Sex and the City, and my house was tidy, and I'd finally like got round to having a regular manicure and pedicure regime. I don't know, just perfect, just kind of pretty, I guess, and kind of perfect, and everything was serene and calm. And I was like... And then I so, so, and so this is the, the argument that I'm having in my head, and the sort of you know the, the clever of me is going, what the fuck are you on about? Like, <laughs> that's never going to happen. If that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. You're 34. You know, your life has already begun. It began in 1975 when you were born. You, you know, if you're going to do something, get on with it now. Stop mm -hmm. waiting. I think women have this feeling of waiting, kind of when I've just lost that bit of weight. You know, I, then things will happen. Then it, then things will be possible. So so that one, first of all. Stop seeing yourself as a list of problems. Stop going, everything will be fine when I've sorted all these things out. Just start enjoying your life now. I tried to write the book, How to Be a Woman, as women love self-help manuals, and they give you a list of things you've got to do, like go on a yogic retreat and cleanse your colon and kind of, you know, ring your five best friends and tell me why they love them every day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for turning the fantastic idea of friendship into another fucking to-do list. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for ruining that. Um, and, uh, and so I wanted to make it had to be a woman kind of like a self-help manual, but instead of going, you must do this with each chapter, it just goes, don't bother with that. With each thing, it's just like, don't bother with that. Um, you know, waxing your vagina, having, having Brazilian waxes. Don't bother with that. Here's why. It costs you an enormous amount of money, and it hurts, and you're doing it to feel normal. Ask yourself, is there any comparable position in which men are having to spend money every month and hurt themselves in order to feel that a part of their body is normal? No. Okay, stop it. Just stop doing it. You're paying tax on being a woman. You're paying tax on having a vagina. It shouldn't cost you money to have genitals. Um, um, so, yes, I mean, that's sort of each chapter, for those who haven't read it, each chapter's kind of like that. It's basically at the end of it just going, so you don't need to bother about that. Um, uh, so yes, first of all, stop seeing yourself as a list of problems. Just start enjoying your life because you most assuredly will be dying quite soon. We all need to really... I just think if more people realise that we are going to die and there is no afterlife, 90% of the bullshit in this world would dry up. This sort of idea that you can just be a bit of a bastard now and sort it out in heaven later, just kind of, it just allows people to become so immoral. If, it, like, you, know, if you know that this is it, you definitely need to become a much more pleasant person. So that... Sorry, I, I just quickly dropped in that there's no such thing as God there. That was a bit heavy. Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe, I don't know. Uh, I suspect not. Um, and secondly, the other thing that women need to do is just check the, uh, the inner voice in their head and just be nice to yourself. I, I think, uh, again, women have a very critical voice in their head that just sort of, that every time they do something, just kind of rolls its eyes. It's often the voice of their mums. Um, if they've had a bad mum, just going, oh, you've done that again, have you? Um, you know, are you going to wear that, are you? Um, you know, just kind of the, the, the voice that kind of, as soon as you're looking in a mirror, doesn't go, oh, you know, your face looks nice, just immediately goes, thighs. That's an issue. Um, and just check that voice in your head and turn it into a nice voice. Again, I really consciously did this a couple of years ago where I realized that my inner voice was being horrible to me. And I just sat down with my inner voice and I had a chat. And um, <laughs> I turned it into a nice voice. I just went, and now, like today, with my terrible hangover, um, I, I sat on the plane and I went, there you go, dude. It's okay, dude. Sit back, close your eyes, dude. You're doing so well. You're doing really well. You're being very brave. Well done, you. Well done. Oh, you're doing so well. And, and I think it's so rare that kind of women just say things to themselves like, well done, you know, you're doing well. Um, you know, so make, turn your, make sure your inner voice is friendly and you make sure you're not tearing yourself up from within inside and stop seeing your life as a list of problems and start enjoying your life. Those would be the two main advices. Thank you. You are so lovely. You've got such a lovely face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the most... 
<laughs> benign face I've ever seen. If there is a Father Christmas or... <laughs> Just, That's the first time I've been compared to Father Christmas. Thank you. Just, just this enormous <laughs> loveliness. You just look like you go around doing loveliness every day. Thank you. I'm feeling so comforted in your presence. Thank you. Thank you. Sexually, <laughs> <laughs> as now you have this fantastic book for women to read. Yes. I wish there was a book how to be a man. Really. How? What advice would you give to young men? Oh God, men aren't really. <laughs> Not really an expert on men, um, because one of, my husband is like one of uh, uh, the people that I rip most of my ideas off from the most. Um, he is, he's taught me more about feminism than, than anyone I know, and uh, and for years um, I, I do that thing that women do, where you kind of go in, oh, what are you thinking? And you go nothing. I go, what are you thinking? And you go nothing. And I'd be like, no, come on, you were thinking a thing. I was just like, you're obviously covering something up now. And, um, and then one day we were sitting down and watching Seinfeld, and Seinfeld launches into this routine, and he goes, women often say to me, what are you thinking? And I'm like, nothing. I'm just like a dog, walking around, just smelling at stuff. And Pete was like, that's what I mean, Jerry Seinfeld means it too. We literally are thinking nothing. Not, not that we're stupid, but women are sitting there analyzing everything from 15,000. It's like the difference between cats and dogs. You know, when you see cats and there'll be a cat on the street sitting there, and then you look down the street and there's another cat 500 yards away, and the cats are staring at each other. And you're like, what are they doing? They're playing some weird kind of cat chess game. They're kind of fucking with each other's minds. Women are like that. We're kind of what we've got, you know, we'll come back and we'll be like, we're having arguments with people in our heads and trying to work out what something means. And just endless analysis, kind of like, what does it mean about me that I'm wearing this dress today? If you go to another woman, kind of like, you know, if I stood in front of my sister now and said, what about this outfit? She'd go, well, what you're doing there is you're wearing a classic 1950s tea dress uh, in order to project that you're, you're not a nice, friendly person. But you've, you've, you've roughed it up a bit with a leather jacket, which shows your rock and roll edge and that you'd like to go for a drink later. Um, <laughs> I can read your outfit perfectly. If I stand in front of my husband and go, what do you think of this outfit? He'll go. And about 10 years ago, I took pity on him and I said, you generally, by and large, when I say, what do you think of this? If you just say, you look really thin in that dress, that'll be fine. Um, so now he'll go, you look really thin in that dress. <laughs> but he's not really thinking anything. So, um, so I don't know, because I, I actually don't know what I'd write in a book, How to Be Man. Why don't you write it? I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> do you think men need advice? I mean, is, the kind of, is there something yeah. men need to know about? What are you no. confused about? Come and tell me. How <laughs> I, I, I think we should have three hours to get into that. Let's do it. Yeah. Come on. They don't need to go yeah. home yet. Mm. Let's face it, we're all here because we couldn't get tickets for Lady Gaga. Yeah. So we've got, we've got till 11 o'clock. This is good. Let's go. That's good. Good. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to pass on that right now. <laughs> uh, speaking of Lady Gaga, we, we, I forgot to ask you about her. She's playing, I think she has arrived in Stockholm right now. Yes, we went past her hotel and she's mm. got a motorcade waiting outside for her, mm. uh, which I think is always the mark of a classy lady. And uh, I just like to believe that as this entire motorcade is waiting outside her hotel, that she's just sitting in a room smoking a fag, just, mm. just, waiting, just looking at her motorcade going, yeah, mm. I can leave that waiting for 10 minutes. I can keep the motorcade waiting. Mm. Um, yes. But Lady Gaga is one of those names that you see on... Endless discussions right now on the sort of culture sections. It used to be Madonna, now it's Lady Gaga. Yes. What's your take on Lady Gaga? Uh, um, that I love Madonna forever. I think every woman in the Western world owes a debt to Madonna. The stuff that we're sitting here wearing now, things that we've done, 
masturbation sessions that we've had um, that we would never have been able to have if it wasn't for Madonna. She did so much stuff. She broke down. We don't even realise every day how much bullshit she shaved us from and, uh, and how much she, she contributed to us being modern women. Um, but I think Gaga's even better because um, Madonna dealt in entirely about uh, uh, turning men on, which is what pop, you know, pop is always going to be about sex. Of course, you want to turn on people from the opposite sex. Pop's about showing off. Pop's about um, turning people on. It's about trying to get laid. Um, so, so it's absolutely right that she did it. It wasn't that she was wrong to be doing that, and she did it brilliantly and probably better than anybody else. But Gaga is the first female artist um, of that stature who isn't about trying to turn on men. It's, it, it, she's, I mean, she's kind of trying to disgust them. Yeah. Um, when people go, how can Lady Gaga be like a feminist icon when you know she, in every video she's not wearing any clothes? Um, yeah, but look, look what she is wearing. She's wearing like shoes that look like armadillos, and she's covered in raw meat. You know, she's not, she's not doing this to turn someone on. Uh, you know, she's covered in scratches and like with kind of like plasters over her nipples, kind of dressed up as a weird plastic nun, kind of talking about self-loathing. I mean, it's, her songs are about herself. Uh, you know, her uh, her alienation, uh, her own views of her, her own sexuality, and sort of darkness and pushing yourself, uh, feeling weird. Um, how you can make your weirdness normal. Um, it's it's very much not come and get it, boys. Um, I would be amazed if there's if there's a, a straight a heterosexual man in the world that's just had a massive wank thinking about Lady Gaga in the video to Bad Romance. I mean, but then on the other hand, there are men out there who have sex with bicycles, so <laughs> anything is possible. But um, and the other thing that I like about Gaga is that she made a space. I think particularly as women. Um, it, the, the most important thing we can have is a safe place for discussion. Um, so much of the world is, you know, men got there first. They've, you know, they, they made the things. It's a world that's full of things that men have done, and that's great, and we can use a lot of that. But every so often, we just need a big space um, that's neutral, that we can do what we want with. And I find Twitter to be that. Um, uh, you know, I don't do TV in the UK. Um, I prefer to go on Twitter instead, because if you go on TV, it's usually a program that's been made by boys, and the comedy is very male. It's very rat -a -ta 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 and very fast. And I like to be more kind of saying a thing here, and then I go over here a bit, and I roam a bit. And, um, and that's just going to get edited down, and then I'll look like a dick who never said anything funny. Um, that's what happens to women who go on comedy shows in the UK. Um, whereas if I'm on Twitter, I can do what I like. No one can edit it. Um, I can be writing on Twitter when I'm, you know, feeding my kids, making their tea. And in the UK, women got on Twitter first, all the female writers and actresses and comedians got to Twitter about four weeks before the men got there. So we were all there and we kind of established the rules, like kind of things like writing things in stage directions, like falls over and kind of, and sort of all the rules about being polite and nice to each other. And then about four weeks later, all the men turned up and all the ladies were there were like, okay, welcome, come in, but wipe your feet on the doormat. Here are the rules of Twitter. This is a place for ladies. Um, and in the UK, the ladies rule Twitter. Um, so, and then, so that was that. And then I was originally talking about Lady Gaga. So yes, what she did was make a space. And so Twitter is a space that women can do what they want with, and Gaga provided a space. She just kind of cleared this ground, the whole idea of the little monsters. When you go to a gig, um, you know, you see the most diverse bunch of people there, and however weird you usually feel in the outside world, you are the normal people there that tonight. And it's a place that's completely, you know, it's, it's, she's so open-minded, she's so, no one gets victimised, everybody is safe here to talk about whatever they want. And that's really important, very few artists kind of think about their fans in that way and go, you know, Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses wasn't going to go, and I'm going to call you all my little monsters, and I'm going to make a special website where you can talk about whatever you want and all your biggest <laughs> hopes and fears. <laughs> he was just in Paradise City, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. He was... 
he was not making big speeches about gay rights in the army and uh, you know and, and campaigning for LGBT rights. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm pro Gaga man. <laughs> although, although I noticed the bitch hasn't tweeted me back. <laughs> Earlier, I was like, I'm in the hotel next to you, Gaga. Fancy coming over for a cigarette? Nothing. <laughs> it's interesting. With Twitter, do you think you develop as a writer while tweeting? And yes. Can you explain how, how, how that happens? Or? It's a perilous hmm. seesaw act, because on the one hand, the fact that you're regularly communicating with people um, and getting feedback on jokes, I'll sort of pitch ideas on there, and depending on the feedback, I can kind of work that up as an idea. Um, I think uh, keeping writing all the time just keeps you very buzzy. You're kind of constantly ticking over, so you're kind of like you're on Twitter, and then you're on a document, and you're going like this, and you're pretending you're on a horse. Why am I on a horse? <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Suddenly I was on a horse. Sorry, I'm... Um, not on a horse, and uh, sitting still. And um, so that's good for that. But on the other hand, you can piss about for the rest of your life on there. <laughs> I, you know, if I've ever sailed near to missing a deadline, it's because something amusing's happened on Twitter, and I'm all kind of like, I need to be on that. Like, just before I left the hotel, um, I was <laughs> thinking, how, how late can I leave it before I leave the hotel to come here? Because um, uh, 80s pop star Sunita had just tweeted that she was on her yacht in the Mediterranean and that another yacht had capsized nearby and sent out a mayday distress signal and that she and Simon Cowell were now going to rescue <laughs> these people on this yacht. And I was like, can I leave this story? Can I, can I in all honesty walk away from the fact that there's someone drowning in the fucking Mediterranean and the last thing they see is their head goes into the water who's gonna be Simon Cowell going, come to me. I don't know whether I'd put my hand out or go up, farewell, <laughs> sink down to the bottom. Um, I'm just loving the idea. And the fact is that, like, you know, I retweeted that immediately. And, you know, kind of like now millions of people know that Simon Cowell is now traveling towards some drowning people. The drowning people, to them, that's just a day where they're drowning at the moment. To everybody else, it's the day that Simon Cowell is about to freak someone out so badly. <laughs> It's all unfolding now on Twitter, and I'm missing it. Um, so I might just go and quickly check, see what's, <laughs> see what's going on. So, um, so, so it's, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. It, it keeps you peppy, but you could just, you could just, it's a massive time vacuum into yeah. which I could pour my entire life. Yeah. In, in the culture world, there's always this suspicion about new media. Yes. So they assume if you are on Twitter or on Facebook, you can't really be a serious writer. So to be a serious writer, you should be in a log cabin somewhere without interest. <laughs> But, but I think it's you are living proof of that you actually get a better, more interesting writer by being a part of your society and the time you're living in. Oh, God. I mean, you know, I mean, it fed into writing the book so much because I was just instantly able to go and ask mm. questions and, and get and feedback back. There was, um, there was a great quote. I can't remember who it was, but someone was talking about um, celebrities on Twitter. Some celebrities are brilliant and very funny and interact with people. Other celebrities just go on there and they don't follow anyone. They just tweet out into the ether. And they're the ones that usually go, Twitter's shit and quit after a couple of months. And they were saying that if you're on Twitter and you don't follow many people, you're using what could be um, a magic mirror that would allow you to to communicate with people and see the whole world just as a mirror to look at your own face. You're basically going on there to tweet things and have everybody tweet back at you going, oh, God, you're amazing, for instance, P. Diddy, who doesn't follow anyone, um, <laughs> and just constantly tweets about himself and Ciroc Vodka, which he's got some massive $200 million sponsorship deal with. So every tweet is like, Ciroc Vodka, let's go! Praise be to God. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, 
But whereas if you're, if you're following lots of people, it allows you to communicate with the whole world. There are kind of, you know, there are people and things that I've learned about. You know, anyone who's funny, I'll follow, um, who sends me interesting links. And suddenly you've got people all around the world that you can talk to. Mm. It's an amazing resource. So, you know, if I, if I need to know something about, you know, Latvia, there's a guy that I can just talk to and just say, hey, what's going on there? There isn't. I haven't got anyone in Latvia. But that was the first thing, first thing that came into my head. But I know people in Scotland. Mm. I follow <laughs> a lot. Two, two people in Scotland. <laughs> Most of them are in London, but it's, it's, it's the possibility is there, and that's, that's the exciting thing. I'm better than P. Diddy, is what I'm saying. I'm much better than P. Diddy. <laughs> uh, I think we have only time for like one last question, really. Really? Yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit more. Okay. But I was thinking about your... I'm very interested in the way you write. You're very productive. You write for, for the time together. You're doing interviews with Lady Gaga, for instance. You're doing TV critic and also a column. What's your writing hours? Where, how do you organize your, your day? How disciplined are you when writing? My writing hours are all the hours. <laughs> <laughs> I have no time off. Uh. Um, yes, no, well, I have three columns a week. Um, and then at the moment, we've just finished writing the sitcom. We're writing the film. We're adapting the book into a film. Um, I uh, have to start my next book in January, which is going to be a trilogy. Uh, so that's going to take a while. Um, uh, uh, so no, I just I just write all the time. Hmm. Uh, but I like it. I mean, I really, I, I, it's really difficult because I can never really talk to other writers. Whenever I meet other writers, uh, that's why I generally have to get drunk quite quickly and just talk about sex because if we talk about writing they'll be like oh god i'm just halfway through this feature i'm just really stuck it's just that's just a massive bastard i don't know any way around it i'm just gonna leave it for a bit or i might rework it can i send it you can have a look at it and uh, and everyone will be talking about how hard it is to write and then they get to me and i'm like i just sit there and go like this <laughs> it's fun Woohoo! i'm on my horse again it's amazing yeah. i'm just riding my horse um but i just i mean i i would I would write, if I didn't have kids, I would write every day of the week, as it is I force myself to have the weekend off so I can see them. Um, er, er, I would do everything that I do for free, literally. The money has been very useful. And mm. I need to buy this nice jacket, but a soft leather. <laughs> That's how they described it in the catalogue. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, fi I find writing very... I mean, you can see I'm quite chatty. Mm. Um, I could... <laughs> <laughs> It would not be difficult for me. Often there'll be a week where I will mm. have uh, written three columns and then I'll just be annoyed that I've written all three columns because I'll be like, oh, this is a good idea. I could do it now and it's mm. got to go with this week. And um, so I just piss it about on Twitter mm. instead. Mm. But yeah, no, I find but, it easy. But, but you are employed by the Times. I know. Yeah, but, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Li <laughs> literally every day. How is this happening? How is this happening? But do you ever visit the office of the Times? <laughs> no. Um, no, no. The last, <laughs> the last time I went into the Times, I'd been sitting in reception, and um, I'm not, I'm not one ever um, a prone much to anger or b any kind of self-aggrandizement. I always try to remember the motto that my great friend Matthew <laughs> Vale told me when I was 16, which is "Don't be a dick." Um, and I try very hard not to be a dick. Um, but I was being a bit of a dick in my head because I'd been sitting in reception for 20 minutes. So I was there to go and see the editor. And I'd only been into the Times about four times. And I was like, and this was the year that I'd won 
interviewer, interviewer of the year, critic of the year, and columnist of the year. And I was like, I'm quite important. And he's kept me waiting reception for 20 minutes. Said, this is bullshit, man. This is total bullshit. And uh, then someone came over to me and explained that the Times had actually moved six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and that I was now sitting in the reception of what was soon going to be a publishing company and maybe I should just walk down the road. <laughs> so, so that's how infrequently I go into the Times. I didn't notice when it moved. Um, yes, but they're, they're all so nice to me. I mean, again, I mean, I, I, literally every day I boggle over the fact that they just let an 18-year-old girl have a column. That was just such a nutsily, insanely lovely thing for them to have done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, you know, they saved me from prostitution. And, <laughs> and how many newspapers can you say that of? <laughs> Wall Street Journal, how many journalists have you saved from prostitution this week? <laughs> I suspect the answer is a big fan zero. You have some certain words like prostitution and vagina. You, I read an interview in Time magazine, and the interviewer said that you mentioned vagina after like 20 seconds. Yes. What, why is it so funny? Well, I could so see funny. her vagina, and yeah, I thought yeah, I should yeah. tell her. I was like, I think I need to mention this. It, 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 it's showing. It wasn't, sorry. Um, I couldn't work out why I would have said vagina within 20 seconds. But, um, well, just for the last... Because the, the book came out in England a year and a half ago, so it has just been a year of of talking about my vagina, really. Um, <laughs> my friend, uh, Grace Dent, who's a columnist in, in London, is my greatest friend stroke enemy, uh, calls me the vagina monologue. Um, she's like, every time we go out, the conversation just turns to your fanny after 10 minutes. But, it, but, it's, but it's a self-perpetuating, I was going to say it's a circle, a circle of abuse, but that sounds like, it sounds like that's a description of my vagina. My, <laughs> my vagina is not a circle of abuse. Um, but it's a circle of abuse in that, because I've written about it whenever I go out now. For instance, I mean, usually if I'm out for dinner with friends, uh, once it gets to the time of the evening where people in the room will have had two or three drinks, I'll always get two or three shiny-eyed women who are slightly pissed coming over and going, thank you so much for writing your incredibly honest book about wanking and vaginas and stuff. Mm. Let me tell you about the first time I masturbated. <laughs> and, uh, and that's happened so, I mean, so often now that when women come over to the table, my friend Grace, who's very prudish, would just simply go, I'll leave you two to your vagina chat and walks away. <laughs> Um, the most astonishing one was, uh, instance was when a very famous columnist in London uh, got very, very drunk and told me about the first time she masturbated, um, which was with a rolled-up copy of Jackie magazine, um, uh, which is a popular magazine for teenagers. Uh, and the most pertinent thing you need to know about this, uh, apart from the fact that it's clearly insane, is that, um, is that Jackie magazine is made of a particularly dry kind of paper. It wasn't even shiny, so I can't see how that would ever occur to you. Paper cuts would have been an issue, staples. <laughs> Um, but then she did grow up to be a journalist, so obviously <laughs> that is the thing that turns her on the most. So in a way, that's quite a lovely story. And when everything is becoming digital now, that becomes impossible, sort of. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Try sticking a Kindle up there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, you know what, let's face it, this is the modern world. Someone probably already has tried to put a Kindle in their vagina. Um, that's, that's, as we know, everything has already happened sexually in the world. I'm sure that's happening somewhere right now. <laughs> so, what are you going to do next? You said you're going to do a trilogy? Yes. yes. Is that a novel or...? Yes, it's a novel. Um, it's about two characters and there are th there's a theme to each one. Uh, the first one is... Uh, uh, it's about two characters and it's over three novels and over 15 years. And it's just about the idea that often when you're a teenager you get to a point where kind of you see who you're supposed to be, you look at your upbringing and what your parents have um, given you and what they expect you to be and often there's a point where you just go, that's not going to do. 
that's not enough, this isn't going to do. And at that point, um, you have to go and kind of basically make yourself um, and how you would go about educating yourself. And often, you know, for me, it was kind of um, uh, the first thing I did was change my name. And then sort of gradually you just go about making yourself. You become the mother to yourself. And the idea is ripped off from a Lady Gaga video, um, which, you know, Truman Capote never said of his novels. Um, <laughs> although, let's face it, if anybody was likely to rip off a Lady Gaga video, it probably would have been Truman Capote. Um, but no, she talks about in the, the video to Born This Way, she talks about mitosis, which is um, uh, self-regeneration, being able to give birth to yourself. And I was like, I like that idea. I like the idea of being able to create yourself. Uh, so it's about that. Uh, so the first one's about self-creation. The second one's about um, uh, mental illness, because there's a lot of mental illness in my family, and I would like to be able to write a novel about that. And then the third one is about unrequited love, because that's just always the, uh, the most poignant of themes. And so they're a trilogy. And... Uh, but usually what happens is if you talk about things in that much detail, you tend not to get around to writing no. them. So I've probably, probably just killed them all here, right now in front of you, and I will never do any of those, and I'll just simply move into picture books or badly written pornography about mm. spanking, which I note from Fifty Shades of Grey is very lucrative. Mm. <laughs> That's great. So I won't ask you any more of that. But oh, thank, no. you, thank, thank you so much. I'm going to leave you to people who want the, their book signed now. Okay. Oh, yeah. I've loved so doing this so much. Fan it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much for Kathleen. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.